As we turn now to God's word, let's join our hearts in prayer. Holy One, we ask that you would speak. Speak in a way that we can hear. We ask you to show us your truth for our lives in a way that we can see, in a way that we can comprehend. By your Spirit's power, O God, may we be changed by your word to us today. May we be helped to know you, encouraged to love you, and instructed about what you would have us do as individual human beings and together as your church, your body in the world. In Christ our Lord. Amen. For the past six weeks now, we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark. We've been in pursuit of an answer to this question of who is Jesus. Turning now to the eighth chapter and beginning at the 22nd verse, our exploration of that topic continues. At this point in Mark, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling by boat to do ministry in the towns around the Sea of Galilee. Let's catch up with them and hear the word of God. Sorry, guys, there seems seems to be a ringing that's coming from me. Okay. For the past, um, sorry, let's read scripture, not my intro to scripture. What do you think? All right. They, that is Jesus and his disciples, they came to Bethsaida. Some people brought a man to Jesus and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had put saliva on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, can you see anything? And the man looked up and said, I can see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he looked intently, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his home, saying, do not even go into the village. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I must have had an eye exam as a child, but the first one I remember having was when I was 18 years old. I had gone away to college and I had that experience for the first time of what it was like not to be able to see the board. In my early morning fractal geometry class, (laughs) there was an easy explanation for why I couldn't see the board. I was asleep in that class. But it was in my ethics lecture, the one with the very animated professor to keep me awake, that was where I had to face facts. I could not read his eccentric scribblings, and it did not help to move off the back row. 
So I went to an optometrist and I got my first prescription and then my first pair of glasses in a style that I promised was very hip at that time. <laughs> Dark rims, plastic, rectangular with a little cat eye. I hoped that they made me look a little bit like Tina Fey when she was on 30 Rock. They were so cool then that I would never wear them now. The trouble is I didn't wear them then, either. I loved the clarity, but I could not get used to the feeling of glasses on my face, and so I cut back to just wearing them in the car or just wearing them in the lecture hall. But then I graduated, and then I moved to New York City. So I wasn't sitting in lecture halls anymore, and I was way too scared to be behind the wheel of a car in New York. So it wasn't so long before my very cool glasses were stuffed into a dresser drawer and I was getting along without them just like I always had with less than perfect vision. Our scripture today is about a person who cannot see, whose vision is restored, not by glasses, but by the hand of Jesus. At first glance, it's a typical healing story We've seen this in Mark. Jesus encounters someone who is suffering or someone who is just encountering the limits and challenges of life in a body. And Jesus uses his power to make that problem go away. It's that kind of story. Except for the weirdness. <laughs> and it is a little weird because first of all, there's Jesus's method. There's how he heals. We know that Jesus has the power to heal some, somebody just by saying the word. When Jairus's daughter was at death's door, all Jesus had to do was say, get up. And she got up and she started walking around the room. He just said it and it was so. Sometimes it seems like Jesus doesn't even have to say it. Remember that woman, the one who had been bleeding for 12 years, who reached out and touched him on the road? Mark tells us that her hemorrhage stopped immediately upon touching him, just like that. That was the nature of Jesus's power. It just poured from him and emanated into the world, even going beyond his physical presence. Once, on a visit to the Gentile region of Tyre, Jesus met a woman who asked him to cast a demon out of her daughter who wasn't even there. And after talking with her, Jesus healed the woman's daughter without ever visiting her, without ever touching her, without ever speaking to her. Jesus' power to heal is unbounded and seemingly unstoppable. But with this blind person, it is different. He and Jesus have walked step by step, hand in hand, until they are alone, outside of the town limits. And Jesus begins his restorative work, but there's something very earthy about it. There's touching, and there's even saliva for some reason. But most unusually, 
there is this embarrassing matter of Jesus having to do the whole procedure twice. Like the first time that guy's vision wasn't restored completely. Jesus laid hands on him once and he could see something. Wait, have the trees around here sprouted legs? So Jesus touched him again. And only then, after the second touch, was the man's vision clear, which is great. That's great. But since when does Jesus need a practice run? What does it mean for one of his miracles to misfire? Well, it doesn't look good. Mark records it faithfully, but this whole incident seems to have worried Matthew and Luke. Both of them had access to Mark's gospel as they were writing their own, and this accounts for the many close similarities between them. But neither Matthew nor Luke remembers this particular episode, and that has made biblical scholars wonder. Was it too embarrassing for them to want to pass this on? Maybe. I think it's tempting for us as well, in a way, to want to skim this one or to kind of brush past some of those weird details. We might rather focus on stories that plainly showcase Jesus' divine knowledge and his perfect power. This story is messy. The second eye exam I remember having was one month ago. <laughs> I couldn't put it off anymore. I just had to know who was sitting in the back row. <laughs> the suspense was killing me. So I looked for an optometrist in my neighborhood and I found one who was kind and gentle and affordable, or so said the good people of Reddit. And they were right. I felt from the moment that I met my new optometrist that she was someone I could trust. And so I was very quick to spill the beans. I told my new optometrist that I had not had my eyes checked in over 10 years. I told her that I had glasses, but that I never wore them. And she did not judge me. She did tell me pretty soon into the exam that on a bad day, I might not pass my driver's test, but she said it with just the sweetest smile. She was so gracious. <laughs> When I said I might like to try contacts, since glasses hadn't worked out so well for me, she said okay, and she set about determining my prescription one eye at a time, trying lens after lens in the refractor. And yes, I learned that machine is called a refractor. Hadn't known that. And every time she made an adjustment, she would ask me, is this better? What about this? What about this? Or this? Or this? And she made these tiny incremental changes on the machine until at last I could read well enough to get to the bottom line of the chart. I'll skip the part where she helps me put contacts in for the first time. 
Suffice it to say there were a lot of tries and a lot of laughter and a few tears, both real and artificial. <laughs> but when I left her office, I just felt so grateful, not only for her care, but because she had given me fresh eyes on this story. That's really bad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but friends, for the past several weeks now, we have been asking who Jesus is. We have talked about his compassion and his power. We've talked about his authenticity, about the way he heals, the way he sins. We have acknowledged him as son of God and son of man. Today I want to submit to you that Jesus is also an optometrist, and a really good one at that. Don't let the whole thing with the spit throw you off. Pay attention to him. Watch what he is like in this role. Hear how in the midst of it all, Jesus asks the man that question. He doesn't assume. He asks, can you see anything? And then Jesus adjusts based on the man's needs, based on what he says. Those details aren't shameful. They're not embarrassing. They don't diminish Jesus's power. They don't make it any smaller. They show the range of Jesus' power and the depth of his care, which is for each and every one of us in these limited bodies in these little lives, the same power that can calm the raging tempest can also doctor something as delicate as the human eye. I wonder how often we look for God to do something big and then miss the miracle because it took place in a subtle way or in a small thing in the eye, in the heart. The church has long suspected that this story is about more than vision correction, though. We know that often when Jesus was teaching, he would talk about blindness in a spiritual sense. On the boat ride to Bethsaida, just before this, Jesus had been talking with his nearest and dearest disciples about spiritual blindness. He was expressing frustration with them because they still couldn't see or perceive who he was or what he was up to. Do you still fail to perceive and understand, asked Jesus. Are your hearts hardened? Do you have eyes and fail to see? His disciples kept missing the point, as disciples often do. And as we are disciples, these questions, these challenges from Christ ought to shake us up a little. We have to ask ourselves, just as they did. When we are in the midst of ministry, is our vision clear? Do we see and know Christ for who Christ is? How, in other words, is our faith? These questions were hanging in the air when the disciples came ashore in Bethsaida. But that is just when Jesus acted decisively to restore sight to someone he met there. 
Is that a coincidence? I don't really think so. Any miracle is wondrous in and of itself, but every miracle is a suggestion of something more. This miracle, I think, says so much about what an authentic faith looks like and feels like. And so it's really a perfect story. Indeed, it's a providential story for us to be speaking about on this day, on Confirmation Sunday, as 16 high schoolers prepare to profess their faith before us all in response to the grace of God, which was poured out in their baptism. And honestly, for all the rest of us too, in those moments when that word faith seems tired or seems trite, we can look to this story in Mark. We can look to this story for a few important and life-giving things about faith. First, and I say this to the confirmation class, but I say it to all of you. First, when it comes to faith, I really want you to forget about one and done. Now, of course, God's act in Christ was singular. It was a one-time thing, once for all. Jesus' death and resurrection brought salvation, brought the promise of new life. But to take hold of God's grace to take hold of that one true thing. Friends, that's a lifelong process with a lot of back and forth. And as many of you know, in my own journey of faith, I drifted pretty far from the church for a while, like a lot of people do in their teens and their 20s, like a lot of you did. For a long time, I thought of Christian faith and religious faith in general as a kind of on-off switch. And for me, it was just turned off. But one of the first things that changed for me was to realize, as John Irving once wrote, that faith takes practice. When we say we practice faith, that's not just an idiom, that's not just an expression to practice faith. You will hear people talk about leaps of faith, and I know what they mean when they say that, but what helped me in my own faith and what I offer to you today is an invitation to a journey that is stepwise, that happens in stages, and sometimes it's really slow going. The practice of faith. The practice of faith is reaching out like the blind man did for Jesus following him as best we can, even when we can't really see, following him where he wants us to go, letting go sometimes, waiting, waiting for Jesus to reach out and to touch us again. But we're expecting it. That's how it goes. God's revelation and our response over and over and over and over and over and over again. It's as Paul wrote, and as you all said earlier in our service, now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. That's faith. Faith is the practice of moving toward God at God's gracious invitation to us. 
What's more, this story from Mark reminds us to stay in conversation with God. When Jesus asked the blind man, can you see anything? That man could have just said, yeah, well, you know, it's better than it was before. Thank you, Jesus. But that is not what he said. He got specific. He told the truth. He asked for more because he knew Jesus could do more, and Jesus did. That man stayed in the conversation. He stayed in the relationship. We can do that too, and we do it through prayer. As theologian Robert Jensen suggested, and these are his words, the capacity of being a kind of conversation partner of God is the heart of what is meant by the claim that human beings are made in the image of God. Among all the animals in the book of Genesis, the human animals are the ones that God talks to and who are expected to talk back. The human being is defined as the praying animal. Prayer. Listening for God and talking back. Prayer is essential to who we are and to what we are. But just like you can forget to go to the optometrist for 10 years, you can forget to pray and you can find yourself wondering why your faith is gathering dust or crumbling into it. If faith takes practice, prayer is part of that practice. And the prayer you choose can be as simple as silence it can be as traditional as the prayer that Jesus taught. It can be as open-ended as a question. One of my own spiritual teachers from seminary, Dr. Bo Karen Lee, would instruct us to pray, Holy Spirit, what do I need? And she would say it in that insistent tone of voice too, because she knew that it was the Holy Spirit's job to help us pray the way we ought to pray. As saints, we can gather with others to pray, or we can pray alone in our rooms and silent in secret with the door locked. But the point is to stay in the conversation, to talk back to God, to ask questions, because God can take it. And I'm going to say that again to the confirmation class. Whatever you have to say to God, God can take it. God. Finally, what we hear in this story is a call to live in community, to live out faith in community. The blind man did not come to Jesus on his own. Mark tells us that some people brought him, and they asked for Jesus' help on his behalf. I love some people. Some people. Some people who encountered Jesus in his earthly ministry made requests for themselves, but just as many people made requests for those they loved. They made those requests because they believed in Jesus' power. They believed he could help their loved ones and friends. Think of the friends who lowered their paralyzed friend through the roof. Or think about Jairus and the way he came on behalf of his daughter, asking for healing. Sometimes the most faithful thing that you can do 
is to support somebody else in their conversation with God, support somebody else in their relationship with God. When we focus on others, our own faith grows. One of my favorite Presbyterians, Mr. Fred Rogers, of children's television fame, he knew where God might be found in other people. Even in the midst of distress, he would say, always look for the helpers. There will always be helpers just on the sidelines. If you look for the helpers, you will know that there is hope. People of God, helpers of one another. What excites me on this Confirmation Sunday and what I hope will excite all of you is that these young people in our congregation are already living faith in those ways. And they are living their faith that way because that is who you have raised them to be. In our class, each one of the confirmands has had the opportunity to express their personal faith, as Emily shared, and they have done that in all kinds of creative ways, in poetry, in song, in performance, or in art, in these paintings. I hope that you'll take a closer look at these paintings by Kate and Juju and Sarah later on. I hope you'll ask Susanna about those sneakers. I hope you'll come by the parlor after the congregational meeting and talk to any of these young people about what it means to them to have faith in Jesus Christ. Because in what they say, you will see a beautiful faith that's in progress, that's being shaped by the hands of Christ himself. And so may our faith be. May it be personal and practical. May it be patient and prayerful. May we know that it doesn't have to be perfect. And as we, the people of God, travel on, may we help each other, being one in the Spirit and one in the Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.